Thank you, Luis. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing unto you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know the feeling. It's the mood in the room when everyone at the table knows that the plan is bad, but no one feels safe enough to say so. It's when the teacher forces you to say you're sorry, so you go up and say, I'm supposed to say I'm sorry. <laughs> it's when your loved one asks you what's wrong and you say, no, really, it's fine, because you're not so sure they could handle the truth. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who does not believe that unity is an ideal that sounds nice in spirit, but you'd also be hard-pressed to find someone who has not experienced that false sense of unity that all too often visits our lives. It's in the aftermath of an election or a war or a playground spat, or it's in the looming schism of our own denomination. The problem with unity is that frequently what we are sold as unity is instead a poor replacement. It's silence. It's phony facades. It's denial and dismissal. And yet in the Bible, especially in the letters to the early Christians, um, we see a common refrain calling this wildfire eclectic movement to unity. What may sound like good news, though, is in fact a call to discomfort. Because thankfully, Scripture understands the realities of what it takes to achieve meaningful unity in a faithful community and in a larger world. As we continue in our worship series, Blessed Are the Uncomfortable, let's talk about unity. Let's talk about why it sounds like uh, what sounds like a naive ideal is in fact a countercultural call to the uncomfortable work of fostering Christ-like community. And to help us in our conversation today, we're going to be looking at a selection of verses from chapter 4 of the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesus was a large, diverse city, um, famous for the temple of Artemis, seen here, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The Apostle Paul himself founded the Christian community in Ephesus, as recorded in Acts chapter 18. It was considered a strategic location to share the gospel, the gateway to Asia, essentially. The point is this, the Christian movement in Ephesus would have been home to very diverse people, not just in terms of ethnicity, but also in terms of broader socio-cultural and even faith backgrounds. This is one of many letters in the New Testament that's authored in the name of Paul, but was likely not authored by Paul himself. <gasps> I know. Instead, it was likely written several years or even a couple of decades following his death. It was very common in those days for students of philosophers like Socrates or Plato or students of theologians like Paul to write in their style and perspective long after their death. And that's what's happening here in the case of many of Paul's letters. I wonder if perhaps after the Christian movement had grown and grown more complicated through that first century expansion, that question of unity had become even more pressing than during Paul's tenure as leader. It's clearly the central theme for Ephesians, unity. And the theological center of the letter's argument comes to us in chapter 4, where we begin in verse 4, in verse 1 rather. It says this, Therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God of all, who is above all and through all and in all. I know that this week is the first week of school for many of the families here at AUMC. Parents, if it's the first week of school, say amen. My family started school on Wednesday last week, and of course, Andy already feels like she owns the place. Andy, aren't you proud to be a Davis Dolphin? Oh, yeah. Woo! This year was a big one for us as our oldest, Andy, started kindergarten. And while that day in normal years would bring a lot of emotions, Worries, fears, joys, lots of tears, lots of tears. This year brought those same emotions, but in a different way that I imagine many of us in the room are experiencing as well. See, I couldn't just worry about whether or not my daughter would make new friends or catch on to new routines in a new space. I had to also worry about whether or not my daughter would catch COVID. To be honest, this is not how most of us thought things would be going right now when we looked ahead several months ago. Remember how optimistic we were? Our return to normal has been undone by a surge in the Delta variant, a surge that we are feeling locally as ICUs across the state are at or near full capacity. And it's a surge that seems to have been avoidable as hesitancy to get vaccinated and refusal to wear masks for some has led all of us to the worst surge of the virus yet. I grieve the 621,000 people who have died in this country alone, including the 1,000 who died just yesterday. But I also grieve the broken theology that has so exposed us as a people and led us to suffer so mightily in the face of an uncaring, unflinching virus. I have heard the obvious tools of masks and vaccines dismissed as, as under the guise of personal responsibility. Except none of us is only responsible for ourselves when it comes to a contagious virus. The mask and the vaccine have very little to do with personal safety. They are tools of communal health. Your mask protects me. My vaccine protects you. This is the way it works. This virus lays bare the truth that though we may wish we could be truly independent of one another or islands unto ourselves, the reality is our world is irreversibly connected. The author of Ephesians captures this connectedness in their iconic litany of ones. You are one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God of all who is over all, through all, and in all. The author is laying a foundation upon which true unity can be built. And it begins with the shift in the way we see the world and the people within it. So long as I believe that I can separate myself from you, so long as we somehow feel distinct from them, unity will be a far-off dream. And the Christian faith is not immune to this divisive way of thinking. Whether it's believing that some are chosen or elected by God above others, or that salvation is something that only a select lucky few will be offered, or that excluding the right people in the name of Jesus is somehow a key to following Jesus. 
Instead, these words meant for the church in Ephesus could be a lifeline for us as we wonder how in the world we became so divided that it's literally killing us. To see the world as Christ is to see a world irreversibly connected. When Christ stepped into the world, as he stepped into the temple, as he stepped into seats of power, as he stepped into his trial and death, and as he stepped out of the tomb, he did so not for a selfish select few who would be magically protected from the harsh pains of this world. He did so for all the world in the hope that some, that we might step into the oftentimes painful work of caring for each other more than we do ourselves. Before unity is even possible, before it's ever on the table, we must have eyes like Christ to see that connection between us, that our eternities are intertwined in God and in each other. Only then will we care enough to risk and hurt and work for unity with depth and integrity. Let's keep reading by picking up in verse 11. The author says, the gifts that God gave were that some would be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. Hear this, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into he who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped as each part is working properly promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. The author is building an argument for how unity can be established within an eclectic community. First, notice that the author affirms the unique giftedness of individual people. Now, it may sound simple, but I believe the author is simply reminding us that everyone is gifted differently, and any community that hopes to have unity must first learn to trust and celebrate in the gifts of others. So long as I believe that I can do all things for myself, I'll be stuck in that independent island, in that sin of self-centeredness. But if we grow to trust, and not just to trust, but to rely on, and not just to rely on, but to humbly submit to the tested and proven gifts of others, we may find that to be a formidable foundation. The author mentions prophets and preachers in the text, but today we might say some are teachers, some doctors, some parents, some epidemiologists, do you hear me, church? Some policymakers, etc., etc. I find it concerning that the same kind of spirits of disunity, the blowing and changing by every wind of doctrine, the people's trickery, the craftiness, deceitful scheming, I find it concerning that distrust and paranoia and conspiracy seem to be prevailing spirits of this day. And as a spiritual leader, I know that these are root concerns that we have to address if we hope to move forward together. It can be easy for us to lament a lack of leadership or to write off some people as crazy, but each of us are called to be agents of trust building for those that Christ has called us to love. 
The author offers us a path towards trust building as they continue and say this, speak the truth in love. Hmm. Hmm. That is a loaded statement. Speak the truth in love. First, speaking the truth is critical when building trust and seeking unity. Without honesty, my friends, unity is a lie. If we hope to have any sense of unity that can withstand the pressures of life, we must be willing to live in truth and speak honestly with one another. You know, authentic has become something of a buzzword, a, a cliche in churchy world, but behind the buzzword is this truth that our world and our Christian community and our relationships are more richly blessed as you bring your full, safe to the, your full self to the table and I do the same. Of course, the community is responsible for receiving your fullness of self with respect and dignity and grace, and Lord knows our world and our churches too often fail in this regard. But my friends, don't you want to be a part of building something better than fake facades and layers upon layers of masks? Do you? No, really, do you? Anybody want to say amen to that? Do you want something better? Something better is precisely what the author hopes to see in Ephesus and what we hope to see here today. Something real, something raw, something you can trust because it's true. I'm Scott, I'm a pastor, I'm a husband, a dad, and a big old dork. And when I say dork, I mean I watch or listen to Dungeons and Dragons podcast level of nerd. It's true, Pastor Maggie, it's true. I have depression and anxiety. I'm an Enneagram One. I am meaner to myself than you could ever be to me. I am getting better at my use of others' preferred pronouns, and I'm still learning. I'm an idealist. I'm loyal to a fault, and I like to drink whiskey and smoke a cigar on my back patio when it has been a particularly long week. Somebody say amen. That's who I bring into this pulpit and into this community. And it's me and it's messy and it's true. And I pray that you can feel safe and sacred enough to bring your full self, to bring your truth into this community and into our world as well. Speak the truth in love. Speaking and living the truth is the first half, but then there's love. Without love... Unity is impossible. You don't need me to tell you about a time when unfiltered, unfettered truth was utterly devoid of love in your life. Maybe you've offered a bitter truth like that before. Maybe you've received the bitter sting of truth like that before. Usually we offer truth without love when we see the person we're confronting as the other or even as the enemy. And once I have othered someone else, it's a whole lot easier to give them a piece of my mind without a single ounce of care for their heart. Perhaps that's why the author began the chapter reminding us of our connection. Because it's from that perspective that love can spring forth. Because you are mine and I am yours and we are one. So the truth is a blessing when it is offered as such. When it's offered as a blessing rather than as a weapon of war. And so without honesty, unity is a lie, and without love, unity is impossible. But when we live our truth, speak the truth in love, unity is available. The author is not naive to believe that this 
to, to the long-term work of unity. Instead, the author is opting for this language of growing, this ongoing growing as a body of Christ. It's not as though one loving, honest encounter, encounter can change the world forever as much as we might wish it could, but it could be the first substantive step in our pursuit of unity. I think we've got a taste of what honest, love-centered community could look like because I see it when I look out and look at you, the people in place called Arapaho. But as the author says, this is a work in which we must continually grow as we unearth deeper truths, as we risk more open honesty, as we try to keep love central, and we won't always get it right. But when I see you, I see a glimpse of what is possible. So that all sounds well and good, but thankfully the author knows that when we commit ourselves to honesty and to truth, the truth is that sometimes we're just plain angry, and an honest community is when open to conflict. Towards the end of the chapter, the author says this, therefore, after you've gotten rid of lying, after you've begun to tell the truth to each other, they say, each of you must tell the truth to your neighbor because we are parts of each other in the same body. Be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't provide an opportunity for the evil one. Thieves should no longer steal. Instead, they should go to work using their hands to do good so that they will have something to share with whoever is in need. Ah, this is the source of perhaps the worst, most out-of-context relationship advice ever given. Did you hear it? Don't let the sun set on your anger. Yeah. Let me just say definitively that this is terrible advice if taken literally. Sometimes you should absolutely let the sun set down on your anger. In fact, let the sun come back up and then have a cup of coffee, maybe a mimosa, and then see if you are still as mad as you were at 1045 last night. I have found this to be true in my life. If you have as well, say amen. That's a lot of amens. It's amazing what a good night's sleep can solve. But then there's that deeper-seated anger. That type that the author is actually addressing, I think. That anger in the face of injustice or evil. The anger that you can't just sleep off. Nor should you. Somewhere along the way, a lie found a home in the Christian church that anger is bad and ought to be avoided at all costs. We were sold an image of Jesus that was all lamb and no lion, and rather than seeing anger as a natural, even God-given response to the world around us, we've been led to believe that anger is instead a sign of brokenness on our part. And the reality is anger can be a faithful response. And when the depth of our anger is matched by the depth of God's love, it can be a source for blessing for us and for others. The greatest acts of justice in our world can be traced to a sense of deep anger and deep love at their beginning. Martin Luther King Jr. witnessed the brutality of the Jim Crow South. Nelson Mandela had to live through an experience apartheid. Susan B. Anthony attended school but knew that she could never use her knowledge or voice in the voting booth. So don't let the sun go down on your anger, my friends. Not the deep-seated, justice-hearted anger. Denying or dismissing deep-seated anger robs us all of future joy. Can you imagine a world where Martin Luther King was less angry? Or where Nelson Mandela wasn't so mad? Or where Susan B. Anthony was not furious. 
Whether seemingly small and personal or completely idealistic in its global scale, when we dismiss or deny the deep-seated anger that we know is bigger than one night's good sleep, we only end up harming ourselves and each other in the end. We become a better community, a better world, when those angers are given the light of day. But lastly, the author reminds us it's not enough to be angry. The closing word in this passage says the end result is not self-serving, but instead something to share with whoever is in need. Christ famously displays incredible anger when he visits the temple in the days before his trial and execution. He enters to find the temple filled with tables of money changers, essentially these corrupt businessmen who had turned salvation into a profit practice, selling overpriced animals for a sacrificial offering, effectively robbing the poor in the name of God. And Jesus flips tables, and he whips the animals into a frenzy, and he condemns everyone within the walls of what is meant to be a house of worship, but instead has become a den of thieves in his words. But Jesus doesn't stay stuck in his anger. Instead, that anger propels him into his final confrontation with religious leaders. His wrath in the face of such injustice becomes the fuel that propels him onto the cross. What began as deep-seated anger transforms into self-giving compassion out of the depth of his love for all people, even those who would seek his death. And so when taken as a necessary element in the life of faith, anger can be the same for us. Rather than simply living in anger and rage, flipping tables and whipping into frenzies, could we hold our anger like Christ, wrestling and processing until moved to even deeper compassion for those whom we'd love to cut off? The work of Christ is processing the anger in our gut until blessed with compassion in our heart. If anger is alive deep within our gut, it can be so easy to lean into our anger and offer those we oppose shame and guilt and unbridled rage, and it feels good. But I also know that Christ had those tools at his disposal and chose compassion instead. Shame and guilt and rage are easily found these days, but they are such truly awful agents of positive change. But compassion... Compassion turns our enemies into neighbors. Compassion turns our eyes to see the beloved in everyone. Compassion turns weapons of war into tools of redemption. What would it change in our world or in our lives if Christ could lead us through anger to compassion so that we might fight for redemption as earnestly and some may say as foolishly as Jesus did? The road to unity is uncomfortable, make no mistake. And the letter to the Ephesians lays out the work that we have before us. To see each other as irreversibly connected. To live and speak our truth in love. And to follow Christ through anger to compassion. May we never be satisfied with false unity and its empty promises. May we set our lives to work for the real thing. Amen.